We're going to make an adjustment here to the lights because we're going to have PowerPoint. I don't see too many with um, our teaching, ma teaching materials, though um, they can be downloaded. Uh, this uh, series is called Keys to Intercession, and we use this um, as a, I guess, a primer, shall we say, for uh, intercession, assuming that uh, you know, most of you, I'm sure, here are, are very informed on intercession. But we uh, take this from ground zero and, and build it up so that we all understand intercession. Intercession is a different form of prayer than uh, the Our Father prayer or, or the uh, supplication prayer. Intercession is always one that goes between for someone else or something else. And we're going to be able to turn off, I think, some of the lights here so that we can see the, um, the PowerPoint. Can we put on the first PowerPoint? <laughs> I'm rushing into this because uh, this is a long, a long teaching. So while we're waiting for the, while we're waiting for the uh, lighting here, um, as he pointed out to you, we have a website that networks intercessors around the world. And um, this was developed just a f couple of years ago. Is that going to be? Is that going to be too dark to take notes or? Can everybody see okay? Yay, yay. We'll be able to see the screen much better now. Yeah, praise the Lord. And so if you come onto the website, www.crosspollination.org, it will ask you some questions. Uh, we want to know where you're from, who you are, and how you know me. And uh, that way it helps to uh, keep those that would be coming onto the website for purposes un <laughs> unseemly, shall we say. And so... Um, just take your camera and take a little picture of that at the end if you like. That'll get you there. Anyway, let's look at the definition for intercession. Now remember, I'm treating you like this is a primary class. Like you don't know anything about intercession, so we're going to build from there all the way through, okay? <clears throat> the act of petitioning God or praying on behalf of another person or a group. Now I don't, uh, I don't speak or read Hebrew or Greek but I do have a Strong's Concordance, <laughs> and I can read English. And so we're taking from the Strong's Concordance, and the word study in the Hebrew is the word pagah. It means to impinge by accident or violently or figuratively by importunity, to encounter, to meet, to reach, to entreat, to make intercession. In the Greek word, it's, it's derived of two parts. I'm not going to try that first part. Hooper is above all, beyond, above, more than, instead of, exceedingly above. And entuego, which means to confer with, deal with, a meeting between, make intercession, meet on behalf for someone else. So we see the introduction here in Greek that it's always, and also in the, in the Hebrew, that it's always uh, to make intercession means to go between God and man for the purpose of someone more than yourself. Amen? There we go. We're getting some lights back there. But it may get hot, so we might have to turn them off. Another word in the, in the Greek for, for intercession is intoxis. And that means to approach the king. And just as we presented last night, that the Lord had invited us into his kingdom, into his throne room. Because if we get into his throne room, he will hear and he will answer. Amen? And, and we shared last night that the way into his throne room is through worship. Now, I want to stop here at this, uh, at this point. 
I was, a, uh, and I'm, I'm a firm supporter of the 24-7, you know, as it is around the world, certainly IHOP and over in Israel and all that, they have the 24-7. But I want, to, uh, I want to stop here for just a moment because these are different days than when I grew up, all right? Uh, when, um, we came into, when I came into Pentecost and when I came into, actually I was saved in the Brethren Church, was a holiness movement, and then the Pentecostal movement was we came in through a holiness, which meant separation from the world in all ways, okay? And so when we, um, we had a, a firm foundation of the blood, we had a firm foundation of the cross, we had a firm foundation of sanctification, which was being se separated from the world, amen? And so that was our foundation that we have built our entire life on. Now, I was at uh, a large, um, I guess it was one thing, and I love, uh, I love Mike Bickle's ministry, and we were down in Tampa, I guess it was or Orlando, excuse me, early part of the year, and I looked at the uh, meeting we were in, and there were probably at least 1,500 people there, and I would say 85% of them were under 25 years old, which really made my heart race because it was a worship intercession segment. Now, the thing that caught my attention and that caused me to become a little bit um, worried because I was wondering where all of these young people are coming from. Are they coming from, from seeker-sensitive churches that don't preach the cross? Are they coming from, uh, from uh, people-pleasing churches? Are they coming from churches that have no foundation on the blood? Because the one thing that we know is that there is no entrance. I don't care how good your worship is. I don't care how good your music is. There is no entrance into the throne room except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that's a missing element with these new prayer ministries, there's 24 prayer ministries, and they've missed that part, then they miss the whole thing. Because your prayers will still never get any farther than the, than the heaven, the brass heaven. Amen? And so it doesn't make any difference if you come there to learn how to worship and how to do prophetic uh, singing and, uh, you know, all this. I don't care how good your voice is. I don't care how much. If you do not have the knowledge that it was Christ's blood that takes us into his throne room, hallelujah, when he says, enter in, amen, enter in boldly. Boldly because we have a good song? No. Boldly because our music is good? No. Boldly because of the blood of Jesus Christ that is our entryway. If you don't have that in your worship and intercession, if you don't have that in your 24-7, you don't have anything. It's just a good song and a lot of words. Amen? So I just want us to, uh, to really emphasize as we are interacting with 24-7 worship groups and, and we are inter interacting with those that are, have understood the worship and intercession that goes together. It is still the blood of Jesus Christ that will take us in. Once that's been established, then your worship, hallelujah, will arise and be an acceptable sacrifice. Amen? Intoxus means to approach the king. And so, as we were worshiping this morning, we were approaching the king. And you see, we, we uh, have become so, um, what's the word, so familiar with God in a lot of ways. Especially, you know, Daddy God and, and Buddy Buddy, Pal Pal, and all of that. Somehow, we have missed the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There needs to be an understanding that he is God and we're not. Amen? And no matter how approachable he is, no matter how much he loves us, no matter how kind he is, he is still God the Father and needs to be respected. And so when we come into his presence, it needs to be with reverence and with, uh, with awesomeness. And I always teach that, that uh, uh, coming into his presence with clean hands and a pure heart, 
That's a prerequisite. If you were going to go into the presence of a king, a natural king, I don't care how, what country it is or whether you agree with their, their political uh, policy or the monarchy or anything like that, there would be an awesomeness about that position. Amen? That if you came into the presence of a king, you wouldn't just casually you know, saunter in there any old way. You would come in with reverence and you would come in with uh, an awe of who he is and you would come in with the gift. Our gift is us. Amen. We're bringing him in our worship. The word in the Webster means to intervene between parties with a view to reconciling differences. In other words, peacemakers. The Lord has called intercessors not to be troublemakers, <laughs> but peacemakers. Many pastors are afraid, and rightfully so, of intercessory prayer groups because there have been those that have just been nothing but gossip sessions. You know, I always think of the prayer chain. <laughs> I think of that like, you know, the telephone prayer chain where, you, you know, you're calling your... Nowadays it's texting, and so it's kind of, you know, uh, abbreviated. But um, the, the prayer chain, which we used... When I was a kid, we used to play something called telephone. Amen? You'd start out with the first person, and you would tell them, by the time it had gotten to three or four people, it's completely distorted. It's not anything like the original message. And so that's what I think happens with some of the prayer chains. They call in there, uh, like the, Lord, the, the pastor needs, um, the pastor needs uh, uh, some prayer today. Well, by the time it's gotten through three or four, he and his wife are getting a divorce. Their kids are into drugs. You know what I'm saying? The church is splitting. All this. And that's why we need to see that intercessors are peacemakers, not troublemakers. And so I always teach, and, and Fonda will affirm this, that we have no opinion. Very important for intercessors. We have no opinion. No matter what the issue is, if there's going to be a church split, if there's some kind of dissension, if there's some kind of problems, you are a peacemaker as an intercessor. You do not, quote, take sides because you don't know what side to take. Amen? You have no opinion because we want only God's opinion, and most of the time he won't share with us what the issue is, who's right and who's wrong. Amen? And so Fonda will, uh, will agree with us that uh, we had firm rules in our intercession, that if you had an opinion, you were out. If I heard that uh, some of our intercessors were taking a position on something that was going on in the church or, uh, or whatever, they had to be out because you have no opinion. My opinion is God's opinion. And so, God, I agree with you over this issue. I may, I may have a personal opinion, which need never to be voiced. Amen? Because it is very difficult not to have an opinion. But what happens is we begin to take up other people's issues. We begin to take other uh, people's offenses. And the next thing you know, you, as an intercessor, you are polluted. I believe that the cleanest place in the church needs to be the prayer room. The prayer people need to be living the most sanctified lives. By sanctified, I mean set aside. I'm not talking about take, taste not, touch not, handle not, though some of that could apply too. <laughs> Hello. But we need, to, we need to be separated unto God. We're going to develop that because we are priests before the Lord. And that's very important for us as intercessors to understand that our platform and our, um, and our identity as intercessors is taken from the Old Testament priests. Amen? All right, let's look at that. Who is an intercessor? Jesus, who's our great high priest. In Romans 8 and 34. Next. <laughs> there we go. Romans 8 and 34. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7 and 24, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we know that Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, king. Amen? That's his identity. When he came the first time in a body of flesh, he came fulfilling the prophetic words concerning him as prophet. Amen? When he, when he died, gave up the ghost, was buried, arose to the right hand of the Father, he now sits in the position of great high priest or intercessor. At the end of this dispensation, because we know him dispensationally, he's always been all of those things, prophet, priest, and king, but we recognize him dispensationally, the dispensation of the prophet when he came in the flesh. Right now we are in the dispensation of the church, which is his position is our great high priest. And so if he is the head of the church, the head of the church resides in heaven, amen, his body resides here on earth, we are his body, our predominant ministry is intercession. Is that not just a logical, a logical assumption? Amen. It, our predominant ministry isn't, isn't preacher. Our predominant ministry isn't prophet. Our, our predominant ministry is intercessor. You will never look more like Jesus than when you are in intercession. So the church is called to prayer. Now, I think it was a pastor last night or someone pointed out that uh, the first thing that the enemy will attempt to do in the plant is to get rid of the prayer. Why? Because prayer is the avenue to everything else. If you, know, if you learn how to pray, that was the only thing that Jesus really taught was prayer. Amen. He lived out his lifestyle so that the apostles were able to emulate him in, in ministry. But he didn't teach them how to pray for the sick. He didn't teach them how to preach. If you know how to pray which he continually taught them on prayer. If you know how to pray, you'll know how to preach. If you know how to pray, you'll know how to pray for the sick. If you know how to uh, pray, you'll know how to prophesy. Amen? It all comes out of the life of prayer. Hallelujah. <laughs> Every one of you know that you are an intercessor. Ho, 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 ho. You might not want to identify with it, but if you want to identify with Jesus, you will identify with his present ministry. In this time, when it's all over and this dispensation is closed, then we will know him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's always been prophet, priest, and king. He will always be prophet, priest, and king. But we identify with him dispensationally. Amen? We're going to open up to Q&A at the end, too. And be merciful to me, because it's sometimes very scary. <laughs> Q&A means questions and answers Okay, I've gotten myself into trouble in, in some other countries especially Anyway, the Holy Spirit is an intercessor Romans 8 and 26 Likewise the Spirit also helps our weaknesses For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us With groanings which cannot be uttered all believers, we've already covered that, but we're going to go back to it again. All believers are intercessors. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, 9, 10. You also, he says, concerning us, are living stones as being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you, me, we are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So we need to get it firmly in our mind that priesthood and intercession, yes, are synonymous. A priest is an intercessor. An intercessor is a priest. I think there was a big church split over that issue one time. <laughs> the priesthood of the believer. Okay, well, we're not going to go there. I'd be, I'd be a, a troublemaker there. Israel. Israel was originally called the entire nation to be priests. In Exodus 19, verse 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, is what the Lord spoke to, to Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall bring to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. However, through disobedience, they disqualified themselves. But does not sound very familiar to what we just read in 1 Peter, that he has called the church to be a kingdom of priests. Amen? Uh, he's called us uh, who were not a people, <clears throat> but now are the people of God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you, you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think many people have disqualified themselves, not permanently, they, they can jump back in again, but because of disobedience. And I have found this one thing. If you live a life of disobedience... If you live a life that is contrary to the word of God, you have no faith when you go to pray. That's why the Lord, you know, the Ten Commandments, all those things are a guardian for us. They're, they're, they're something to protect us, uh, not something to, to keep us away from, except to keep us away from the things that are going to help, you know, hurt us. That's what the Ten Commandments are, like a, like a shelter around us to keep us from falling into those things. If you don't commit adultery, you're never going to have, you know, the problems that go with that. If you don't lie, you're never going to have to remember whenever. If you don't murder, you know, you may not have to go to prison. You know what I'm saying? So the, the issue being that the, the Word of God has been given to us as a protection. As a protection. And if we live within the parameters of the protection, our faith will be great when we go to pray. If you have sin in your life and there are issues in your life, when you go to pray, there is no faith. And the enemy knows that. That's why he's constantly trying to draw us away and draw us into things that would be bad for us. Because he knows that you no longer have faith when you go before the Lord to pray. How many of you have ever gone, you know, there's something going on in your life and you go to pray? And yeah, me too. Any question that, that and it's going to be answered? No, there's no faith there to believe that your prayer is going to be answered. Hallelujah. I, we're not talking about works. We're just talking about how we condemn ourselves. Amen? And then, of course, the advocate. <laughs> Thank God we have him. But we have an accuser of the brethren who's always right there. And he always uses uh, something uh, of truth. <laughs> and that's what he points at. He'll drill on that. There'll be some weakness in, your, in you, and he will constantly harp on that subject and then you come into agreement with him we don't want to come into agreement with the enemy we want to come into agreement with God hallelujah all right let's talk about 
when, when the priests were actually initiated into the priesthood, it has had to do with not only a ritual, but it had to do with their garments. Amen? So we're going to look here very briefly at Aaron's garments. He was the high priest. Now, lest you think that you, should, that you are not qualified to be an intercessor, let's consider the life of Aaron, who was the high priest over all of Israel. Because remember, when the, when the nation uh, sinned and, and resisted God, <clears throat> Moses came down off of the mountain. They were having an orgy there. It was just a, an ugly thing. And, uh, and so he broke the tablets, and he addressed the people. And, uh, of course, what had happened is, is in his, uh, his brief 40-day 40, 40 venture into, uh, into the heavenlies, or into Mount Sinai, where he met the Lord, and uh, got all the directions and the uh, construction for the tabernacle and the garments and all of that, uh, the people down below, and this is what happens, I think, in ministry a lot of times, the people will keep at the leadership until they come up with some kind of a substitute. And I think we're seeing that all around the world right now in churches. Pastors that are being, are being um, hounded and, you know, we want to be... I was just thinking about our nation. This is another rabbit track trail. I was thinking about our nation the other day. Our nation has said, we want a king. So now we've got... Because we want to be like the rest of the nations... We don't want to be America separate and different and, and uh, unique and under God's presence. We want to be like the rest of the nations. Give us a king. Give us a king. So now we have a king. Amen. And we are becoming like the other nations. And now we decided we don't like it very much. But that was exactly what happened with, uh, with, uh, in, in Samuel's day. The people said, give us a king. Give us a king so we can be like the rest of the nations. And I think America just follows right along the track of where Israel went. Time and time and time again, the church goes along just exactly like Israel did. And we are going to pay the price and are paying the price for it. But when we look at Aaron, for instance, he was the one left in charge of the people while Moses was getting the instructions from the Lord. And so the people said, you know, I don't, we don't know what happened to, that Aaron, uh, to Moses up there. You know, he probably burned up. It looks like there's a cloud. Who knows? He might have got snake bit and died up there. You know, it goes on and on and on, the reasoning of man. But we need a God. We need to have... So hey, Aaron, you know, get, get us something to worship. We, we, we're worshiping people. We're, we're people that have to have something to worship. So, so he builds a golden calf. Right? Isn't that, what he, isn't that what he did? This is going to be the priest, the high priest, <laughs> over Israel. See, don't disqualify yourself from being a priest. <laughs> Consider Aaron, Selah. So when, when Aaron, when Aaron uh, is standing there and Moses comes down and he says, What have you done? Oh, the people, the people, the people, the people. And he says, well, What's this golden cap? Oh, I just threw it into the fire. He not only built a golden cap, but he lied about it. Amen. I just threw it into the fire. And there it came out of golden. I don't know how that happened. Yeah. Amen. And yet God used him to be the high priest over Israel. Amen. Because there was a changing of the garment. I'm sure there was great repentance on Aaron's part also. But because of the garment, that's what qualified him. As you, if, if you study the garments, that's what qualified him to become the high priest. Aaron's garment, Leviticus 8, 5 through 12, it says, And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. 
Moses brought Aaron and his sons, washed them with water. He put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the urim and the thummim in the breastplate, put the turban on his head, also the turban on his front. He put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and the base to consecrate them, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now, he also told him in Exodus 28, 1 through 4, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments. You see, these were not made just happenstance. It was those that were anointed to make the garments, amen, to consecrate him that he may minister to me as a priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash, so they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as a priest. Now, in Leviticus 16 and 30 it says, this was the day of the dedicate, for on that day... The priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins. So we see that the priest has got a very high position. Now let's, let's uh, go off of this just for a moment because we know now who is the great high priest. Jesus, okay. Now let's look at the position. How many of you saw the, uh, it was a wonderful um, rendition of the Bible or, or the, uh, around Easter time. Oh, it was, it was really, really good. It was better than any of them I've seen before because it, it included the baptism of the Holy Ghost on the Pentecost. I love that too. But one of the things that you saw was Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest? And when he became very agitated with Jesus, he tore or ripped his robe. He ripped his garment. Now, here's what it said. Um, in Leviticus 21.10, he who was the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who was consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. In Leviticus 10 and 6 it says, And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. So the high priest or the priests were not allowed to tear or rend their garments in any way. However, Caiaphas, who was the, the high priest of the day of Jesus' interrogation, when he was in there uh, being, uh, being interrogated uh, at, before he went to Pilate's Hall, and he, and he was asking him, you know, are you the Christ, are you the Christ? He became so agitated with Jesus that he tore his garments. I present to you that that was the changing of the priesthood. Was the changing of the priesthood. Matthew 26 and 65 says, Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further do we need of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. That's what the high priest did. Now, Jesus was making the transition in the garden of Gethsemane in intercession. Amen? He was moving from the priest, from being the prophet 
into his position now, into the intercessor. So he, in the, in the garden, he was pre- praying, and he prayed with such intensity that the capillaries in his body were, were opened, and, and he sweat great drops of blood. Now, continuing on from that position of intercession, he comes into the presence of the high priest, where the garment has been rent from the high priest. Now that priesthood is gone. It is gone. It is gone. And the wrath will come upon the people. But hallelujah, we have one named Jesus who stepped into that position. Yes, glory to God. And he now sits with robes of righteousness. <laughs> and he has clothed us with robes of righteousness. Amen. Qualifying us to be a part of his priesthood. Isn't that awesome? To think of Jesus, our great high priest, Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of the thing we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Aren't you glad we don't have to be under that uh, old covenant covering anymore? All of the blood shed and all of the things. Jesus did it once for all. When he said, it is finished, it's finished, folks. Hallelujah. There is now no more sacrifice. And all of the, the hoopla that goes on in, over in Israel, and I go to, you know, I'm, I'm connected with a ministry in Israel called, called Apple of His Eye. And, you know, the hoopla of the Christians wanting to, to, you know, for them over there in Israel, especially the Orthodox trying to uh, get money in from the Christians to rebuild the temple. If they build, rebuild the temple, what in the world is going to happen if they start doing blood sacrifices again when the one sacrifice once and for all and for eternity, amen, uh, has already come, is already provided? If they begin to do uh, blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices again, I wouldn't even want to be anywhere close to that temple. Amen? Woo! I would think that the wrath of God would come. How? 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 How could the Lord from heaven bear to see that type of action? And Christians are foolishly falling into all kinds of silliness and weirdness of stuff that goes on in Israel. I want to tell you, there's a few, there's some wonderful ministries to support, and there are some others that are fleecing the flock. Amen. The Orthodox Jews are not your friend. There is a major difference between between um, the Orthodox Jew's understanding of the Scriptures. You see, as Christians. And I hope I'm not stepping in here too deep, but I feel like I need to lift my voice on this. Yeah. As Christians, we tend to think that the only difference in their, in their interpretation of the scriptures is Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that what most think? That's the only difference is that we have the New Testament. They don't. A world of difference. Most of the ultra-Orthodox are Kabbalists. What are Kabbalists? That's witchcraft. There are whole villages in Israel. There's one uh, right there uh, just uh, outside of uh, the Galilee area. A whole village. This all Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, and they are Kabbalists. Kabbalists, Kabbalah is witchcraft. I mean, if, if Madonna is embracing it, what do we think it would be worth? <laughs> Praise the Lord. So the only thing, the only thing that we have in common... With the Jew, they have the Old Testament, but they go by, the, by uh, most of the rules and regulations rather than the scripture itself. 
but they have a promise from God. And I believe that there's going to be a tremendous revival in Israel. I believe the Jewish people all over the world are going to begin to awaken to their calling. Yes, and awaken to the DNA that's within them. And I want to tell you there are millions and probably billions of, of people who have uh, that heritage within them. I know in, uh, I love the Latino people. They feel that there's probably a li at least 30 million, 30 million of your Latins that, have, uh, that are from Jewish root. Amen? If they make Aliyah to Israel, what an army that's going to be. <laughs> there are some, uh, Del Sanchez and some of the other ministries that are, that are really uh, solid, la Latin ministries, that are trying to uh, get them to recognize uh, through the DNA. In fact, if you go on his website, you can get a, you can have, uh, get a blood test of DNA, uh, if you're Latin, to find out if you have, uh, if you have uh, Sephardic blood in you or Jewish blood. And uh, that should qualify you to be able to move to Israel and to take, uh, to take residence there. However, uh, they're, you know, they're protesting the Ashkenazi, which are the European Jews who are pretty much over the, the oversight of the DNA and who comes into Israel and who doesn't. Uh, they have uh, you know, kind of put up a little barrier against the Latin people, Latino people, uh, because they are wanting more of a proof. But uh, Del Sanchez believes that their inheritance is the Negev because it's very much like Mexico. Amen? And this all comes from... Should I go down this tra trail for just a moment? You know, this is off my track, but, but uh, sometimes those are good places to go. Um, it's believed that uh, Christopher Columbus, who came here to the New Land in 1492, was the same year of the, of the Spanish Inquisition, 1492 when uh, the church came and the Jews only had three choices. They either converted to Catholicism, they had to flee the country, or they had to die. Those were the not too, not too enjoyable things. So it is believed that Christopher Columbus perhaps had Jewish roots himself, and those ships loads of people that he was taking to the West Indies were to save their lives, that they were Jewish people. And so they settled in the Latin country in South America, Central America, Mexico. In fact, the Inquisitioners actually came to Mexico. How many of you have been to Mexico City, down to the Reforma down there, downtown? They even have a, a plaque there, uh, commemorate, not commemorating, but noting uh, the Spanish Inquisition that had come over from Spain to kill the Jews there in Mexico City. And so we see then that there's a rich heritage that God has put. That's just the Latinos. I'm hearing of other ethnic groups all over the world. The Chinese, great, there's a great deal of Chinese that have Jewish roots. Amen. So God is calling them in. He's going to call them back to the land, not to just occupy the land, but to know Yeshua, to know Jesus. You know, when we preach, oh, yes, 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 about the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Jerusalem that you may be blessed. What is it? Is it we're praying that the, that the little land will be... No, 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 no. Praying that whew, the peace will only come. It's not going to come through politics. It's not going to come through negotiating. It is going to come because of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. True justice. Yes, yes, the true king shall come. Amen. And the recognition of who Messiah is. You don't have to look for him, Jewish Jewish friends, you don't have to look for He's already come, and He's already available to you. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Well, we won't even get onto that. I, I imagine that's part of them. Anyway, what is the process of intercession? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I believe that, excuse me, I believe that all prayer that's going to be answered is initiated from the, from the throne room, from God. Amen? All prayer that's going to be answered initiates from Him. If we pray according to the will of God, He hears and He answers. So it's very important for us to be praying according to His will. So this is a very simple way that I look at it. I mean, I'm, I don't know how scriptural it is, but, but I believe that, that the prayer initiates from the Father. He wants something done down here on earth. So it initiates from... Uh, so the beloved, uh, the beloved uh, uh, Trinity uh, are in conversation, yes, over what the will of God will be. So the intercessor, Jesus, sends the Holy Spirit, yes, to communicate with our spirit. Amen? So here's Jesus... Because the Holy Spirit comes to communicate with our spirit. And so all of a sudden we are stirred inside about something we need to be praying about. And the intercession will take us and, and, and it will, uh, if we let it go, it will, it will control us. Amen? The prayer will control us. Anybody prayed to the place where you could not uh, speak English, you could not speak tongues? That you, it was groanings, which were so deep that nothing else, nothing else uh, would come out of you. Sometimes it would be so deep. And then all of a sudden, it'll lift. And you think, where'd that, where'd that come from and where did that go? And a lot of times you don't even know what it is. But I believe that the Holy Spirit, as He comes in to stir our spirit, yes, yes, the one, He who searches the heart and knows the mind of the Spirit, He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God inside. And so that, that then is birthed through us, and I believe it, through the avenue of the Holy Spirit, return back to the Father until the time. Every prayer that's ever been prayed, that's according to the will of God, will be answered. Every prayer of, of the prophets, every prayer that Jeremiah prayed, every prayer Ezekiel prayed, every prayer Moses prayed, every prayer David prayed, every prayer any of the patriarchs prayed, every prayer that the, the apostles prayed, every prayer that our, that our, our uh, father, forefathers, our Christian forefathers, uh, St. Patrick, I just came from Ireland, I just told you a couple of weeks ago what an awesome man St. Patrick was, and it, it is thought that he also had Jewish roots, amen? And so every prayer that's been prayed by any of these people throughout all of the centuries and every prayer that you have prayed, every prayer that I have prayed will be answered. There is a time. That's what we were talking about last night with the bowls. When the harps and the bowls come together, when those bowls get completely full, they're going to overflow, hallelujah, upon the earth and the prayers are going to shake the whole earth. Amen? So don't grow weary. You see, we live in a time frame. God, where God is, there is no time. He lives in eternity. Amen? So what we prayed 50 years ago, you know, pfft, nothing. What was prayed 2,000 years ago, pfft, with, and where God lives, was, was yes, two minutes, two seconds ago. Amen? Uh, just a brief intermission ago. 
Amen? So if we will get away from the microwave mentality, especially in our generation, and realize that our prayers are going to be prayed and you don't have to belabor them, once you have prayed according to the will of God, you can leave it with Him because it's in a very safe place. Amen? Because God has memorials. Ha, ha, ha. Acts 10 and 4. This is about Cornelius. And when the Lord had, when the angel observed, or when, when Cornelius observed the angel, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. In other words, there's a memorial set up in heaven because of your prayers. And I submit to you that we have memorials that are set up before God in prayer. And giving alms is giving to the poor. So when you're giving to the poor, there are also memorials set up before God's throne. Amen? Good word. That's a good word, Lila. Okay. I believe, because I was raised in a, a home that was Christian only because we were Americans, okay? Uh, I, never, I wasn't taken to church or uh, introduced to Jesus or anything like that. I hadn't heard the gospel until I was an adult. But I had a, a grandmother, my mother's mother, and my mother had actually run away from home very early in life because she rebelled against, um, against religion, as she called it, against uh, the gospel. My grandmother, if she's the kind of grandmother I am, or great-grandmother I am, she prays for her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Don't we all? Yeah, sure we do. Sure we do. And so I, ju- I, I, I believe that she prayed for me, even though I don't remember her ever, because we lived, she lived in Missouri, we lived in California, and we would see each other once a year for just a short while, and it was my parents that were interacting with her. She died when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And, uh, but I know that she prayed for me. And I believe that there was a memorial sitting before God's throne. Because there's no other answer for the way I came to Jesus. And there may be others sitting here today that there's no other answer why you've come to Jesus except someone, somewhere, had prayed for you and there was a memorial sitting there and all of a sudden, God moved on it. Yes. So I lived my life in the world like everybody else. Uh, not knowing anything about God, not having, I didn't know anything about the Bible, I had no direction in my life, and you know where that leads you to. So here I am as a, as a, a young adult, and I'm a single parent, and my daughter is about uh, three years old, I think, at that time. She's like 56 now or something like that. And um, anyway, she, uh, I, um, I had all kinds of problems, you know, um, and I had a, but I had a girlfriend who had, got, who had gotten saved. And she and I had lived the same kind of life. And all of a sudden, there's this big change. That's why there has to be a change in our life when we come to Jesus, because people are watching you. Amen. And you can be Jesus, the only Jesus that they're going to know. Amen. They're going to view you, and they're going to say there's something different. Well, that's what I said about her, because when she first got saved, she tried to witness to me. 
And when she came up and began to witness to me, I, I, I shut her down. I cussed her out. I said, I don't ever want to hear blankety blank. I cursed Jesus. I cursed her. I said, don't ever, you know, don't ever talk to me. If you want to be my friend, I don't ever want to have this discussion again. And, but praise God, she loved me. And, you know, I'm always, um, <laughs> I guess because it was in my own life, but uh, I'm always suspicious of the people when you, when you go to lead them to the Lord and they just agree with everything you say, and, yeah, yes, I receive Jesus in my heart. No, 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 I like it when they get in your face because my father-in-law used to say, <laughs> if you throw rocks in a pack of dogs, the one that yips is the one that got hit. And so <laughs> I was getting hit, okay, because I'm yipping, I'm loud, I'm not liking what's going on here. But what she did is she loved me, and she, and she stayed with me for three years. And in that time frame, I was able to observe her life. Then she, uh, her husband was going to be going away working, and she asked me if my daughter and I would move into the home with her, which we did. <sighs> that had to be totally God. Why would she have wanted me, I'm living like the devil, to come live in her home? And so I was able to observe her on a day-to-day -day basis. She had this peace, and she had something so different about her. So every time she would go to church, she would invite me. And of course, I, no, you know, not interested. She never pressured me. She just gave me an invitation. Then finally, she said to me, you know, it would be a good idea. My oldest daughter's name is Robin. She said, it would be a good idea if Robin went to Sunday school with my kids. Well, you know, I want to be a good mother. <laughs> and uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, okay, it's all right. Never underestimate the power of a child's influence. She'd bring home her little pictures of Noah, you know, and the animals, and, 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 and uh, tell, was all enthusiastic about what she'd seen in Sunday school and all that. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm looking at stuff that I don't know anything about. And she's, you know, she's kind of helping me out from, <laughs> from a three-year-old's perspective. And um, so anyway, uh, this goes on for a while. And finally, uh, my friend said to me, oh, she was so shrewd. She said, you know, it's always better. If, if the parents take the children. <laughs> well, I had to think about that for a while. <laughs> and so finally she pinned me down to a Sunday morning. I, I agreed. Now, this is at a Brethren church, you know, United Brethren in Christ. And so, uh, and I didn't know the difference between that or, you know, Mormon or Catholic or, I didn't know the difference between anything. So I agreed with her. The only thing is, this was on a Saturday, that Saturday night I had some place I wanted to go. And I was out all night. And uh, I came home, you know, just before the sun comes up and I've got a, you know, this kind of a head when she tries to wake me up. And, and I, I said, no, 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 I, I'm sorry. I'm not feeling too well this morning. And so she says, well, come with me tonight. They were having a revival. Well, what did I know about a revival? That didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know what that word meant. So I said, okay, just to get her off my back. Well, that night, you have to, you have to picture this. You know, the kids think they're so with it today and and we were with it 50 years ago I had royal blue hair okay yeah yeah and so I when I went to this little this little very tiny tiny little um, brethren church there couldn't have been more than a dozen people there but I believe that the prayers of my grandmother Mary Alice Schroeder or Mary, Mary Alice Mary Alice Foster were sitting had been sitting there as memorials, and Sharon Price, her prayers, had joined in. Yeah, and the hound of heaven was hot on my tail. Yeah? So that night, I came in looking like the wicked city woman. <laughs> tight, 
you know, a little short dress. And, you know, they're holiness people. They got buns on the back of their head, and, you know, and they, the whole business. And I'm sure they didn't notice me at all. <laughs> didn't make any difference because I had a big chip on both shoulders. And I thought, just let somebody say something to me tonight. And that's how I went to church. Well, anyway, I come waddling through, and we sat down. And um, as soon as the evangelist starts preaching, I get very angry with my friend. And I'm thinking, the minute I get out of here, I'm dumping her. I'm moving. I'm getting, I never speak to her. Because I, I thought she told him all about me before, <laughs> before I got there. I was just sure of that, okay? Yeah, yeah, because he was nailing me everywhere. And I think she told him all about me and what I did. And, blah, 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 blah. and uh, so my idea is the minute I get out the door, I'm, I'm gone. Well, never underestimate the power of the word. All of a sudden, I don't know what the sermon was about. I couldn't tell you to this day. But I remember the scripture. It burned like an arrow into my heart. He said, The heart of man is desperately wicked and evil above all things. And who can know it? It was my moment of truth. It was my moment of honesty. Because I did not know myself. I had tried to change the habits in my life. I had tried to, to, to do something better. I had tried. I never could succeed. And so here, why I'm telling you this is this is the process that's going on with the sinners that are sitting in your church if the word of God is preached with power. This is what's going on inside of them. And instead of us, if, when the, the altar call is given, intercessors, I'm talking to you, instead of running to the back door trying to beat the Baptists to the restaurants, okay, we need to stay there during the, because it doesn't apply to you. We need to stay there during the altar call because heaven and hell, life and death, is being waged over people that are sitting in your congregation. Because what immediately the enemy jumps on my shoulder and says, you're too evil, you're too wicked, there's nothing you could do. You could never be forgiven. La-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And now all of a sudden, I am just, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? The word of God comes. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made whiter than snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be made as wool. And all of a sudden, hope rose up in my heart. Now I've got these two powers. The power of the Holy Spirit and the demonic power that had me bound waging war with one another. I'm the deciding factor. Your prayers, my prayers over people, you don't have to be laying hands on them, but you can be sitting there. And it doesn't take too much to see conviction on people's faces when there's an altar call. You can be praying for that, and your prayer could help to determine the outcome of that person's response. Amen? And so what happened, I didn't... I, I, Never been in a church with an altar call, but, but I got up and I walked to the altar and I didn't know how to pray. I'm weeping and crying and I don't know what's going on. And I knelt down at the altar and the, and the pastor prayed over me. And I got up from that altar never to take another drink, never to smoke another cigarette, never drugs, no more immorality. My life was completely born again. Now, people say, oh, you can't have all of that. You have to go through cleansing streams. And I, I, I support that ministry. You have to go through personal counseling. Uh, you know, you have to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit before your, uh, your addictions can be broken. I say that the blood of Jesus Christ at salvation, hallelujah, can break every chain. Break every chain. We sing that song from the platform, and yet we don't believe it. Amen? The blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it can break any addiction in anybody's life, anywhere, at any time. 
Amen. I think we need to be praying the full gospel when we preach, when we preach to the, the uh, unbelievers at the very beginning. Get them saved, baptized in the Holy Ghost. I was just with a pastor. I, I was doing a meeting in, uh, outside of Pittsburgh, and he was saying that, that uh, he was a hippie. That church had been there for many years. I believe it was a Ukrainian church. I, I'm not sure. Uh, one, of the, one of the Slavic countries. And uh, now it was all English after all these years. It had been founded many years ago. And uh, he said during the hippie movement, and these were very much holiness people, they opened the doors to the hippies to come in. And he said they would get us saved, you know, up, up in, in, you know, in the sanctuary. But it had a, it had a basement. And he said, and then they would take us down into the basement. They'd get us baptized in the Holy Ghost. And one of the men was a barber. <laughs> he would cut their hair and, and shave their beards. And then they would be, <laughs> isn't that cute? And he said, and then we were really sanctified. <laughs> but they did the whole thing all at one time. And he said, it took for him, it's been like 40 years ago. Isn't that cute? So anyway, I love that testimony. In uh, Revelation 5 and 8, we, we read this last night. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Then another angel, Revelation 8, 3 through 5, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire from the altar, threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Hallelujah. Now let's go to how to develop intercession in you. If any of you need, I've got a lot of materials to cover, and I'm going to try to cover it all in one session. And if you need to use the, um, the restroom, it's not going to bother me. If you need to leave for any reason, I am not going to be offended. Just come and go as you can, okay? Because we have a lot of materials, and we're in a time frame, shorter time frame. <clears throat> intimacy. Let's look at intimacy. That's the way we develop intercession. The word Intimate. A person whom one knows well, likes and trusts, a friend, a mate, a familiar, a confidant, characterized by a close and thorough acquaintance, personal, direct, inside, adjective, very closely associated, close, friendly, familiar, another adjective, indi indicating intimacy and mutual trust, familiar and confidential. In Psalm 27 and 8 it says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. So it's all about seeking his face, not his hand. And we, under, we need to uh, see that intimacy is God's desire. It was his plan. He's the one that, that uh, suggested it in the first place. <laughs> when he created man, was, he created man to have intimacy with him. He created man to have fellowship with him. And in Genesis 3 and 8, it says... That the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So we see then that it was the custom, the custom or the, the um, daily, that there was a relationship between Adam and Eve and the Lord where it was a face-on relationship, a relationship of, of sharing one another's heart. And we, we see then that there was an interruption because of sin. It wasn't on God's part. It was on man's part, obviously. 
And so there, here's this chasm now of God being able to have intimate face-on relationship with man. How it must have broken the Father's heart. But he'll never be one-upped. He always has a plan. And so his plan is going to be played out as we, as we follow all through Genesis. You see the sadness of the fall in the garden. You see the t- uh, Tower of Babel. But you see that there is a, a bloodline of faith that weaves through it all. We see that there are those who are heroes of the faith. There's Enos and, and then there's uh, uh, Noah and, and coming on down to Abraham. Abraham actually became a friend of God. And so as we, uh, as we follow Abraham, and then we see uh, that, that there's Isaac and uh, Jacob and Esau, but, but uh, Jacob is the seed line. And Jacob has 12 sons. And we come to the end of Genesis, and we find that, that the children of Israel are now in Egypt, which is, was a place of their safety and protection, but they stayed too long. Quite often that is the issue with us. The Lord will bring you to a place of safety, yeah, and of protection. But if you save too long, stay too long, it will become a point of slavery. So that's what happens when we come to the book of, of Exodus. We see that the children of Israel are now suffering under slavery. They have, they have uh, this terrible despot, uh, Pharaoh, and he's having them build with bricks. And, and uh, they're living a very impoverished life where they had been living in Goshen when, they were, when the Lord's favor was upon them to be there. But he raised up a mighty man called Moses who brought them out of Israel, or out of Egypt, excuse me, with uh, a great miracles. Of course, we, we read all about the plagues and the miracles and all that. And the parting of the Red Sea leads them into the Sinai Desert. And we referred to it earlier. And then he calls Moses to the top of the mountain. And when Moses is at the top of the mountain, he gets the prescription or the, the pattern yeah, for the tabernacle. And so, in Exodus 25 and 8, he says to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Now we see that God is giving to Moses a plan of how he can begin to dwell with man in the midst of man again. What an awesome plan. And so here... They build the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and it has all kinds of prohibitions, and they can't do this, and they can't do that. And they can only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement during Yom Kippur. You can only go in there, you know, at that time. And the priest only, uh, by changing his garment in, um, in Leviticus, it tells you in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, he has to take off the priestly garments. He has to put on an all-white garment. He goes in and he sprinkles the blood first for himself because he's a sinner and then for the totality of Israel. Now, this is the way that the presence of God is being treated at that time. His presence is with them as a cloud and as fire, but now he is dwelling among the people again here on earth. Amen? But he's getting ready to do some fantastic things. (laughs) Then came the day of Pentecost, and he's not only dwelling with us, but he is dwelling in us, because <laughs> he had a habitation, yeah, yeah, he had a temple, he had a habitation, a place of dwelling that was going to be better than the tabernacle. It would even be better than the relationship that Adam and Eve had with him in the garden, hallelujah, because now the ability to know him and have fellowship and intimacy with him 24-7 has become available. It says in 2 
Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement has the temple of God with the idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hallelujah. John 14, verse 16 and 17, and I will, Jesus said, I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he tells him, and he will be in you. On the day of Pentecost, praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. The way we know that Jesus made it to the throne Hallelujah is because we speak in tongues. Because <laughs> he promised when he got there he was going to send the Holy Ghost. Amen? And so every time you speak in tongues, you are, you are affirming that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. That he arrived there. Amen? As our sacrifice forever. Praise God. All right. So intimacy was God's idea. Now let's look... <clears throat> let's look... <coughs> That's seeking his face. Excuse me. In Genesis 28, 10 through 12, we have an account, or 10 through 22, we have an account of Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob lived under prophetic word that had been given to his mother. And I'm sure his mother believed it and was going to make sure it came to pass because we see manipulation on her part and his part all the way through those chapters in Genesis that describes the relationship of Jacob. I've often wondered what would have happened if she hadn't gotten in there and messed around with it and, and if Jacob hadn't been the supplanter because the, the word Jacob means a supplanter, a heel grabber, a swindler, so to speak. And so he knew, because his mother had told him probably from the moment he, he popped out of the womb, that he was going to, to, even though he was the younger brother, he was going to get the blessing and he was going to be the bloodline that was going to carry on for Messiah. However, his life did not prove that out too much because we see that he swindled his brother out of his birthright and his brother Esau thought so little of his birthright that he was out hunting one day and, uh, and he got so hungry that when he came in, uh, Jacob had, uh, <laughs> he, he must have been a chef of the, you know, he, he could have been on the food channel, you know, because he'd made a big pot of beans. I always say beans, they say lentils, but you know, I, I'm partial to pinto beans myself. But anyway... <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a cowboy thing. Anyway, um, he, he'd made a big pot of beans there, and Esau wanted some. And he said, give me your birthright, and I'll give you a bowl of beans. Well, Esau said, if I die, what good is my birthright going to I'll take those beans, okay? So he lost his birthright. Now, uh, I want to I point out that one was a mama's boy, and one was a daddy's boy. Jacob was the mama's boy. And I want to stop here for just a moment about how we put, uh, how we put labels on our children. And I believe that we do a great disservice to our children if they have a propensity, like a girl that has a propensity that she wants to, you know, be a tomboy or whatever, you know, of, of, of lesbian. Okay, okay, she's going to be, that's going to be her identity now that they're identifying them in elementary school for crying out loud. What has happened to our nation? You know, who would know what your sexuality is in the fourth grade? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so, uh, uh, don't, get, don't get me going there. 
but, and boys, if they want to be a hairdresser or a chef or something like that, well, then they must be gay. No, come on. Let's not put those labels on our kids. They're going to be, they're going to be what God's called them to be. You know, I have, our youngest daughter, I always call her, even though we have two sons, I always say <laughs> she's the son my husband never had. Because <laughs> the older boys were never interested in the things he did. He, you know, he worked in the movies and he, he fell off of horses and he, you know, he did all kinds of dangerous things like that. And the boys never were inclined to do those type of things. But our youngest daughter, now she, we, they used to call her Rhonda Honda Kick and Go. Oh, her name is Rhonda. So that'll give you, the, she, dirt bikes. Uh, she liked uh, fallen horse, falling horses, uh, running horses, uh, horses, uh, uh, cutting horses, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, now she goes out deer hunting every, with, with all the old men in the region. <laughs> She's married and, and, got, <laughs> and her husband likes to fish. He doesn't like to hunt, so she calls herself... <laughs> She calls herself the redneck whisperer <laughs> because, because all, the, all the old guys about her dad say she lives in California. They like to go hunting, so she goes on these hunting things with them. She's usually the first one to get her deer, you know, field dresses it and the whole business. And she's, she's a beautiful, blonde, gorgeous young lady. And she, there's nothing masculine about her at all. That just happens to be her preference. And so I'm so glad nobody put that kind of a title on her when she was a child. <laughs> ah, good old Rhonda. Anyway, uh, Jacob, his mother, he's his mother's favorite. So, so Jacob, well, his mother overhears the father, Isaac, saying that he's going to give the blessing to Esau. And the father sends Esau out, who was the man's man. He's the hunter. Yeah, he smells like a man. <laughs> You know that by reading because Isaac says, Mmm, you feel like Esau. You smell like Esau. Okay, yeah. And so anyway, uh, he was a burly, you know, furry, hairy kind of guy. And so um, Isaac sends his, his son out to go hunting. You have to read some of this into the stories, you know. It makes it a whole lot more interesting if you have an imagination that goes with it. But um, so when when he's going to send Esau out to, to, to dress, you know, to kill something and to bring it in and he wants the savory meat because he's going to give him a blessing, the mom overhears it and so she dresses uh, Joseph up, who was a smooth boy, and uh, she puts, you know, hair, goat's hair around his arms and around his neck and all that and puts Esau's clothes on him. So when he goes in, now Isaac is, is blind. And here, here's a really interesting thing. Isaac says, who is this? He said, oh, this is Esau, because the mom had made a big, you know, what he liked to eat. So he's bringing it in there. And so he took him and he, he took a hold of him. And he says, well, you, you feel like Esau. You, you, you smell like Esau. He says, but you don't sound like Esau. And I want to point out here that something can smell good, it can feel good. It can even look good. But his sheep know his voice. And they will not follow another. He knew the voice of Jacob and the voice of Esau were different. But he went ahead and blessed. He blessed Jacob. So we see then that Jacob has got to, uh, has got to get out of town. His mom says, okay, I want you... She goes into the father. I love, I love the mother because she... She's so typically female. Manipulators, manipulators. Okay. And nothing is ever good enough. <laughs> Come on.
Come on, ladies. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the issues that we as women have to deal with. We're manipulators. Yeah, yeah. And you men, you let yourself be manipulated because it's to your advantage. Okay, anyway, what I'm saying, the, as women, we have to stop manipulating things to happen. We need to let our, leave our hands off and let God take care of issues. But she's, but she's manipulating now. So she goes into the father. She says, you know, I just don't like the wives that Esau has. Come on, let's just send Jacob on over to our family up there in Syria. Let's let him find his, his new wife and, and bring her down here from our family and, and, and things will be better. Mean, she, she's wanting to get him out of town because his brother's going to kill him. But it sound, father, it sounded good. To, okay, let's just send, let's just send uh, Jacob off. So Jacob is en route. And when Jacob comes, and this, that, that was all to lead us to this place in Genesis 28, 10 through 22. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place, put it at his head, and he lay down in that place. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you as your descendants. And he goes on to cut covenant with Jacob. Now, I, Jacob knew he had a prophetic destiny, but I don't believe that he knew the Lord at all until that point. This is where he has his encounter with the Lord. And it says um, in verse, uh, verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, or Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, Keep me in this way that I am going. Give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, that sounded like a very wonderful thing, didn't it? This is a brand new Christian. He's seeking the Lord's hand. He's a brand new believer at this point. And this is how we are as, as brand new believers. And isn't it wonderful how the Lord carries her around like on a potato chip for a while and everything you pray about happens and all these God encounters and then all of a sudden crunch the, <laughs> the potato chip breaks and you, 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 know, you hit the real world. Okay, but we see the vow he made. If you'll be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, give me bread to eat, clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then, then the Lord shall be my God. And he says he's going to set a pillar up for God's house. And he's even going to tip the Lord. Yeah, he's going to give him a tenth. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know, I can't understand. I can't understand people who, who aren't into tithing. The Lord's only asking for a tip. You know, and the, and the waitress wants 15 or 20% now. Come on. She wants more than the Lord. What is the big deal? And you don't have any trouble, you know, tipping the waitress or tipping the, you know, your... Whoever, everybody's got their hand out. You know, tip, 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 tip. And yet people have, mm, I can't give that tenth to God. But he's, he's promising if God will do all those things, then he'll give him a tenth of his income. Well, we know the story of Jacob. <laughs> his father-in-law turned him every way but, but loose. You know, uh, 
the old scripture, or it's not a scripture, but it should be. Well, maybe there's something that implies it. You know, you uh, you sow your oats. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And uh, then pray for a crop failure. Okay. Well, what happened is, uh, yeah, everything that he'd sown, he got back through Laban, his father-in-law, who just turned him loose, swindled him, lied to him, cheated him, and the whole business. All of a sudden, the Lord tells him to go back to to his his homeland, where his family was from. Now, remember, they didn't have email, and they didn't have texting. They didn't have any way of communication. So when he left, his brother was going to kill him. Now, the question is, is his brother going to still kill me? That's, that was the last news he'd gotten from home. And, and so here he is on his way, being obedient to the word of the Lord. And in Genesis 32, we see this is going to be the night before he meets his brother. Then Jacob was left alone. He he passed his family, his wives, and his children, and all of his uh, livestock and everything across. And he was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What's your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And so forever after, when it's referred to Jacob, like in uh, Psalms 24, I think the different ones, it talks about seeking his face. Everything about Jacob from that point on was no longer seeking the hand of God, but it was seeking the face of God because he had an intimate relationship with the Lord. Yes, and he had seen God face to face, and his life was preserved. Praise you, Jesus. So it's all about seeking him with your heart, seeking his face and not his hand. If we were, I just would love it sometime if Jesus would come in to the meeting and sit there anywhere in the meeting and we didn't try to put him to work. He could just sit there and enjoy our presence and we could enjoy his presence without asking him, heal somebody, save somebody, do something. He could just be with us. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? And I believe that his heart is desirous of that. But we always want to put him to work wherever we <laughs> Jesus do the Jesus help us here, Jesus, and he's willing to do that. But I think he would just love to be in our presence. Psalm twenty four, three through six, who may ascend to the hill of the most high, and who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Second Corinthians 4 and 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want knowledge of his glory, seek his face. If you want to know the secret things of God, seek his face. He said, a humble and a contrite heart he will not despise. It is not the arrogant and the proud that are going to hear the revelatory information from the Lord. If we want to know what's going to happen in these last days, if we are preparing ourselves and our hearts for what is coming upon the earth, we need to be humble, contrite, seeking his face, 
not his hand, just seeking his face. And he will download to us. He said he won't do anything except he tell his prophets first. Amen? Yep, yep, yep. I know I'm putting you guys to sleep. Intimacy. I'm going to make a, a brief, um, after, we, after we do this, I'm going to have a little brief break and then we'll come back. How's that? <laughs> Everybody's saying yes, yes, yes. Reproducing after the heart. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. In Genesis 1 and 28, we're still in intimacy, yes? Good girl, good guy. Yay, thumbs up. You're ahead of me there. Then God blessed them, the man and the woman, said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was the commission given to the, to the man and the woman in the garden. They were to multiply and be fruitful and replenish the earth. That is the command that's been given to the church. To be fruitful, to multiply, and to replenish the earth. I'm not talking about having physical children, though I have no problem if people have large families. But he is commissioning us to make disciples, to reproduce. Amen? After him. In Genesis 17, very interesting thing, because every time the Lord has approached, approached Abraham prior to this, it's always been God promising something from Abraham. Now in Genesis 17, the Lord is asking something from Abraham. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my commandment, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and between you. That's, that's a very, very interesting uh, covenant, isn't it? Very strange. But it has to do with the reproductive organ. It has to do with, with a very large, very great revelation of what he desires from us. Even under the old covenant, he reveals that that was a type of something. And this type was in Deuteronomy 10, verse 15 and 16. This thing wants to... <clears throat> the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and to choose the descendants after them, you above all people as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart... And be not stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 30 and 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And so it is necessary for the heart of the believer, amen, to have, uh, to be circumcised in order to reproduce after his kind. Amen? That was, that was the covenant he was making then, but the, the, the crux of the covenant was leading up to the circumcision of the heart because it's all about the heart. Everything that has to do with the kingdom of God, everything that has to do with the Lord has to do with our heart, the condition of our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, out of your belly or your heart shall flow rivers of living water. 
Everything has to do with the heart of the believer. We think it has to do with the exterior, what they say, what they do, how gifted they are, how much they can prophesy, how accurately they can prophesy, how loud they can preach, and how good they can preach, and how many souls are saved uh, as a result of which God will save souls whether the vessel that's preaching the gospel is right with the Lord or not because he is true to his word. Amen? So we can't be moved by that. It's all about the heart. And the Lord wants our hearts, yes, he wants our hearts to be so changed. He wants our hearts to be just like his. I remember one of the things that I always pray is, God, enlarge my heart. I'm always asking, enlarge my heart. Enlarge my heart that my heart can contain the nation's. Enlarge my heart, O God, so that my heart can be filled with the things that are in your heart. So that you can fill me up. So that I can feel as you feel. I can think as you think. I can look at people the way that you look at them. Lord, it's all about the heart. Change my heart, O God. And I'll never forget, I was at one of the prophetic meetings somewhere, and I'm, I uh, was talking to Bob Jones. He said, I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The commission to the church was like the commission was to the man and the woman in the garden, to reproduce and replenish the earth. He has given us the commandment to reproduce and, and replenish. Amen? And I, wanted, I want to say this, that the church, for the most part, has been reproducing after themselves. That's why our hearts need to be circumcised. We've been reproducing after our denomination. We've been reproducing after uh, the, the people that we know. We have been uh, patterning, patterning ourselves after everything but Jesus. But it is upon us to bring our disciples in to, re, to, to reproduce after him. Amen? Then we're going to have a healthy church. The church is not healthy right now. It's very sick. It's very weak. And I fear for what, what's coming in the future, all of the, all of the demands that are going to be made upon us, all of the pressures and the issues that, that we're going to be facing, it would seem, in our own nation here. And uh, if, if our church has not gotten strong, if we are not raising up disciples that are, are going to bear the image of God rather than our image, amen, we're going to have a lot of issues. We're going to have a lot to answer for. And those of us that stand behind the sacred desk, it is... The onus is upon us to make sure that the foundation of any of, of our uh, disciples will be in Jesus Christ. Amen? Not patterned after us, but we need to be living as close to the cross as we can. I'd like to be able to say, like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen? It shouldn't be, oh, well, don't look at me because I fail all the time. That's a cop-out, folks. Jesus is saying, you know, be like me. Oh, my goodness, that's a pretty high, high call, isn't it? Or Paul was able to say, I'd like to be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. So that my life would be such an example, so exemplary, that people could look at my life and say, I want to be, I want to follow Christ as she follows him. Praise the Lord. All right, last scripture, and then you can take a break here. Um, Colossians 2, 11 through 15. In him you were... Also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all the trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a brief. We'll come back in about uh, 15 minutes, okay? I have one. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come all of you to the waters. And who has no money, come all of you, buy, eat. Yea, come buy, eat wine and milk without money and without price. Interesting that the commentary, Barnes, said this chapter is closely connected in a sense with the preceding chapter. But it flows from the doctrine stated in Isaiah 53. And, of course, we all know Isaiah 53 has to do with healing and so on. It's designed to state what would follow from the coming of the Messiah. It would result from that work that the most free and full invitations would be extended to all people to return to God and to obtain his favor. There would be such ample provision made for the salvation of human beings that the most liberal invitations could be extended to sinners. The main idea in the chapter one conceived to be that the effect of the work of the Redeemer would be to lay the foundation for a universal invitation to people to come and be saved. So ample would be the merits of his death that all might come and partake of eternal life. To, st to state this, I suppose to be the main design of the chapter, it may be re regarded as comprising the following parts, and it has the following parts. So I'm going to see if I can, yeah, I think I can still see here, <laughs> even without my miner's cap. Identification. Jesus is our great identifier. I believe that there are four steps to intercession. First is intimacy, then identification, then there's agony, and then there's authority. And the church is always trying to go from all the way to authority without having gone through the, the steps. Amen? So we've dealt with intimacy. Now let's deal with identification. Jesus is our great identifier. He's our priest, our intercessor. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that Jesus was truly tempted. But if the scripture says he has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. And so when we look at our Savior and, and identify with him, because the only way we could identify with the God that created all the universe was for him to come down in a body and, and interact in flesh, just like us, identifying with us so that we could identify with him. Amen? He is able to aid those who are tempted. In Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, seeing then that he has a, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The difference between Jesus and us is he did not succumb to the temptation. He overcame the temptation. That's why he promises us that 
He will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able to stand, but he will always give us a way out. I have, I've talked to people who say, I couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. That's the way I am. I mean, I was tempted and I just, it was something I couldn't resist. That's not what the word of God says. The word of God says he will aid you. He will, he will assist you. He'll not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able to withstand. And yet he will give you a way out. Always a way out. And so Jesus came taking on the body of flesh so that he could, he could relate to us and we could relate to him. Now he, and we call that identification. Amen. That means he identified with us. We can identify with him. Now, the ministry he has given to us is the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, it says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what he is, speak, what he is telling us to do, I believe in intercession, is we need to begin to identify with those that have a need that we are standing for. All right? That means that your pain is my pain. My pain is your pain. It's not a matter of sympathy, patting somebody on the head and saying, oh, I feel sorry for you and I sure am, you know, I'm going to be praying for you. No, it's getting into letting God draw you into the empathy that he has toward us when we are tempted, so that we can experience what the other person is experiencing. That's empathy, not sympathy. Sympathy is patting them on the head. Empathy is your pain is my pain. And when we begin to deal with people at that level, and that's why I think God so marvelously uses people that have had issues of their own before they came to Jesus, that have, you know, maybe addictions or whatever. Have you seen how, how easy it is to deal with, if you've had addiction, how easy it is to deal with somebody who has addictions? Amen? Because your pain, you know what they're going through. You ex understand that. I've found that it's really a powerful in, in uh, praying for the sick also. Because in praying for the sick, if you have had cancer, you know not only the physical part of it, but the emotional part of it. How, how your mind works with that, how you feel like, I'm going to die, it's a death sentence. And so when someone else is suffering with cancer, you have the empathy. And when, you, when that empathy is there, then the compassion comes forth out of that empathy so that your prayer has got, has got some oomph to it. It's got some power to it. You know, I've studied healing, as I'm sure all of you or many of you have, from soup to nuts. What is the, um, what is the key to healing? What is it? You know, and, and you cannot find a formula. Believe me, there is no formula for healing. Uh, Jesus healed in so many different ways, he made sure that we weren't going to try to get a formula. You know, sometimes it was the hem of his garment. Sometimes he spit in the mud. You know, sometimes he spit in their eye. You know, sometimes he, uh, you know, sent the word. Sometimes he laid his hands on them. Sometimes he just, uh, he had all various different ways. But, I, but the only common factor I could find was compassion. He healed through compassion. 
And that's why he wants us to be able to identify with one another. Why he, we can't, if our, as long as our hearts aren't circumcised, if our hearts are just, are just uh, uh, calloused over, if our hearts are indifferent, we're not going to feel the pain of someone else. We're not going to empathize with them. We're not going to be able to identify with them. That's why it's all about having heart surgery, you see. Uh, God's way. Then we'll be able to feel the pain of one another. Uh, if, you've, uh, if you've gone through a divorce, you know how horrible that is and the loss, and, or if you've had, uh, you know, uh, say, uh, say your spouse has been unfaithful or whatever, and, and you know someone that's going through that, you can identify with them. You can pray effectively because their pain is your pain, your pain. Understand? This is what we call identification. That's why when Jesus came, he knows, he knows everything that we're going through. He, he's experienced all of this. I was thinking, you know, even, uh, the rejection. Look at rejection. I mean, he was rejected by everybody. And in the end, he said, Father, why have you, for, why have you forsaken me? He had, he had the epitome of rejection. Jesus knew what it was to have a Judas kiss. If you haven't had a Judas kiss, get ready, get ready, get ready. It's a part of your identifying with Jesus. And every time we go through these things, we can say, Thank you, Jesus. You have counted me worthy to be able to experience what you've experienced. Hallelujah. He came to experience what we're experiencing. Now we can experience what he experienced. Praise God. Praise God. I think a Judas kiss is one of the most uh, most painful things you can go through. Because it always uh, is, is a person who is so very dear and close to you. Your closest friend usually. And uh, I can just... Um, the pain that Jesus went through with Judas must have been terrible. And then all of his, all of his apostles... All of his disciples, not just Peter, but they all denied him. They all left him. And yet, that great heart that he has, he wants to put that heart in us. So that no matter what the issue is, there's always forgiveness. Even to the one that had the Judas kiss. Amen. Unfortunately, the one that, that kissed Jesus could not forgive himself. You know, he went out and killed himself. Empathy. First Corinthians, I just referred to that, 12, 25, and 26. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffers with it. Or if uh, one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I think it's a lot easier to be able to, um, to suffer with somebody <laughs> that, that is going through something than to... Uh, to rejoice when you were the one passed over for the job that you were very, very, very capable of and they gave it to somebody else who was a whole lot less qualified than you and you're to rejoice with them. Amen. Identify with them. Rejoice with them. So you were supposed to be um, promoted to um, youth leader and uh, somebody who just came in a few weeks ago you know, got the position instead and here you had been, oh, you had been wanting that position for so long and so what you do is you suck it up and you rejoice with them. Hallelujah. That's the harder. That's the harder identification than the suffering part. <laughs> Been there, done that. Agony. Out of, the, um, out of the identification will come what we call agony. And the burden of God comes on an, as an overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Oh, look at that. She's got it up there on the board. The Holy Spirit, like Mary, our heart or our spirit becomes the womb of God. You see, we produce not after... You know, the reproduction that God is talking about is not after the flesh, it's after the heart. 
the reproductive organ for the believer is the heart. That's why the heart has always got to be right. That's why it's got to be circumcised. And remember that, that um, Abraham uh, did not pregnate, impregnate Sarah until after he was circumcised. He had one child, Ishmael, before. That was when he was in uncircumcision. But after he was circumcised, he, he came together with, with uh, Sarah, and they had the promised seed, and that was Isaac, after he was circumcised. And so the Lord wants us to bring forth spiritual children out of the heart. And so here, this is where burden and travail come in. Burden is receiving the concern from God. And there are several different types of, of burdens, impulse burdens, I call them. The first one is Luke 19, 14. Now, as he drew near, this is Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it. It would indicate to us as we're reading that in Luke that they were just having their daily trek through Jerusalem and all of a sudden they came to the place where he overlooked, he overlooked Jerusalem and he, was, he wept. The intercession came on him. He was weeping, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you unto myself and you would not. I think about that when I go through Pensacola and, and I say, oh, Pensacola, Pensacola, you miss the day of your visitation. Oh, as a city, you miss the day of your visitation. causes me to weep and to, and to cry and to have the agony. Amen. There are long-term burdens. In Galatians 4 and 19, it says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Normally, I believe that whenever the Lord gives you a burden and you, have, you know that you have birthed it, you know that you have prayed it through, I believe that it needs to sit before God as one of those memorials waiting until the time of revealing. And this will free you up so much from, from the agony of having to carry your family around on your back the rest of your life. You know what I'm saying? You can't pray for anything else because you're, <laughs> you're so busy praying for your children or your, or your spouse or your, you know, your friends or... or the, you can't even you can't begin to pray for your city or for your nation because you're so burdened down with what you see. And I tell you what, I do not believe my lion eyes. <laughs> the Lord has said to me, "My seed to a thousand generations." Hallelujah! Isn't that what He said? Let's not worry about the third and fourth generational curses in families. You know, this is where everybody gets hung up on, you know, the curse that's in your family for the third is followed down to the children of the third and fourth generation. But he said, for the righteous, it's to a thousand generations. And so I say, no matter what happens, no matter, you have promised me in my household, and Lord, I am going to rest in that. I, I put them before you, and I'm watching it unveil. And believe me, Every one of us have those people that we constantly, if we were to look at them, we'd say, Oh, God, you're not hearing my prayer. Uh, I didn't pray through. And you pick that burden back up again, and there you are, carrying it around, carrying it around. Now, what Paul did, he did labor again in birth for the Galatians because the Galatians had gone into legalism again. They'd gone back underneath the uh, uh, Jewish laws and the Jewish rules. And he said he was going to labor in birth again until Christ was formed in them. So you may have long-term burdens that God will bring back to you from time to time, things that need to be birthed through. But for the most part, once you have prayed over it, the issue has been released to God, you give it to him and you leave it there. Otherwise, what happens, especially I find this with women, because I deal with women more than men, uh, that, uh, that they, they play God, you see. We try to fix our kids. Yeah, we're just going to make it all come to pass. And so uh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I, I advise the same people over and over and over again would come with their issues about their children. I say, oh, 
what did you do? Well, I did. I, I went ahead and bailed him out of jail. Let him stay in jail. You know, hey, come on. Maybe God's going to deal with him there. Every time you bail him out, you've become God. You know what I'm saying? I think we can identify with that one. Yeah. Isaiah, this is what we call praying through, old timers. We called it praying through. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. There is a praying through that you know that you know that you know you have reached his throne. That burden is gone from you. Leave it there. Amen? Now, let's, that's, that's a burden. Let's look at travail. Travail is the act of bringing the burden to birth. It is the prayer of compassion. In Psalms 126, verse 4 through 6, Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so this is an uh, intercession. This is a travailing of weeping. And I'm always reminded of the Argentine revival, and we talk about it in our book, because it was such an inspiration to me. Uh, of the connection between the Argentine revival, the, the Pensacola revival, a Toronto revival. They're, all those rivers are the same. They're all the rivers of God that just need to, ro- to flow together. And I have discovered through the years that a revival, if it doesn't flow out and interact with others, uh, it becomes internalized. And then it becomes, uh, it becomes a denomination. Amen. And then it dies, of course. And then it becomes incestuous because it only reproduces after its own kind. Yeah, yeah. And no longer is it, is it flowing and free. And so that's why we need, we try to embrace all the revivals I do that, that are going on. I, there is no, there's absolutely no jealousy in, in any of us over revival. You know, we, if, if God's moving someplace, I want to go there, I want to get a part of it. I, it doesn't make any difference whether it's in my church or through our influence. If God's moving someplace, I just want to get in. I just want to be a part of it. I just want to feel his presence. I want to rejoice with what's going on somewhere else. Amen? And so uh, in the Argentine revival, it was a... How many of you are familiar with the, um, the Argentine revival of the 60s? Yeah. It was... Um, but I, I do because that intercession that birthed that revival actually was an intercession of tears that lasted for days and days and days. And so I, I'm going to recap that for you because it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, back in 1961, I guess it was, we received a, a prophecy by a man called Tommy Hicks that had been the leader of the uh, revival that was in Argentina in the 1961, I think it was, or no, 19... In the, in the late 1950s. But what it occurred is uh, he had gone to Argentina and held some campaigns where hundreds and thousands of people were saved in a very brief period of time. And I was sharing this one day in, in a Sunday school class about Tommy Hicks because it was the prophecy that he gave that, that, that we latched on to all of those years and have held on to it. Because he talks about a great end time revival and the glory of God and there's going to be great healings and deliverances. And it just so resonated in our spirit that we, we've always believed that Tommy Hicks' prophecy was going to come to pass and that hopefully it would be in our generation that the greatest move of God that the world's ever seen is going to hit planet Earth and it's going to be known far and wide everywhere because it's going to be poured out upon nameless, faceless people everywhere. So uh, I was sharing this in a meeting 
And a man from Australia said, oh, but Lila, he said, what about Ed, Ed, Edward Miller? He said he was the one that had the prayer meeting that came before the great outpouring of, of the revival in Argentina. And I said, you know, that name sounds familiar. I think I have heard something about it. So I said, is he still alive? Because I believe in the cross-pollination, you see. He said, well, um, I don't know. I hadn't heard that he died. He said he'd be a very old man now. He said, well, I'll see if I can track him down. Well, as it came about, he was living in um, Atlanta, Georgia, which is only about four hours' drive from us. Whew. Well, I was really excited, so I was able to get his phone number, and I called him, and uh, I told him who I was. And, of course, at that time, I was still vacillating over the worship and intercession, and I wasn't sure, you know, really sure about all of that yet. And um, I talked to him, and he agreed to meet with me. And uh, when, we, when we met together, it was absolutely awesome. Uh, we took our oldest son so that it would be the next generation, uh, so that should we not live to see the fulfillment of what God's doing, we always want the young people to climb on our shoulders, go higher, farther, deeper. You know, we're passing the baton on to the next generation and uh, let them run with it because as surely as I stand here, this is going to happen. God is going to show up on planet Earth. He is going to show His glory. He is going to show His bride as glorious and, 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 and pure and, and powerful, not some shriveled up old woman. And so uh, we, we uh, got together, and then we drove up there, and it was an amazing thing because at that point he was six months over past, he had cancer, he was six months overdue of having died. As it, as it is, he got, as it was, he got healed and lived for several more years and actually returned to Argentina. But he, he told me the wonderful story. He said that he, was, uh, he had come to Argentina where they had never had a revival, they'd never had a move of God in the history that he knew of. And uh, when he got there, he said he did all the missionary things. He, I think he was AG, if I'm not mistaken. He went down as an Assemblies of God missionary, and he did all the missionary things. He passed out tracts. He, you know, he visited the people, knocked on doors, did everything. Nothing, nothing, nothing. All the time he was there, nothing. He could not get anybody, you know, it, no success at all. He was very discouraged, and he was planning on going back to the States. And so, but he had a, a very amazing thought. Maybe he should pray first. <laughs> hmm, what a unique thing. <laughs> when you've done all things, then pray. <laughs> so he decided, okay, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to pray about this, whether I should go back home or what I should do. So he said he, he decided that, that a man works eight hours a day, so he thought he would give himself to eight hours of prayer a day. So he would lock himself in his office, and he, he spent the first 10 days he fasted and prayed. He said, Lila, he said, God wasn't in the, in, the, in the carpet, he wasn't in the ceiling, he wasn't in the corner. I couldn't find God anywhere, could not find his presence anywhere. He said, day after day. He said, oh, it was labor, terrible labor. And he said, at the end of 10 days, he said, the Lord spoke to him. And he said, you know, fasting is not the coin to heaven. In other words, I'm not a slot machine where you put a, a coin in. He said, if that were so, I'd let you starve to death. Fasting is for you, not for me. And so Dr. Miller said, boy, I wish you would have told me that the first day. <laughs> it would have been a whole lot more pleasant. He stopped, he stopped the fasting, but he continued to pray. And it went week after week after week without any breakthrough. And he said, then all of a sudden, one day, and he didn't know anything about my cross-pollination focus. He said, he came in presence. And he said, Lila, it was like I was sitting in a river of golden honey. 
honey, honey, cross-pollination bees, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, why did you use that? He says, because nothing could have been sweeter or more satisfying. In other words, he had his own personal revival. And I always say you cannot light revival in someone else unless you have it yourself. I see revivalists going out preaching revival, but they have never experienced it themselves. You have to have that deep, deep, intimate place that you've had with God that changes you so that you become a drink offering, so that you can pour yourself out wherever you go upon dry land. Amen? Without that, nothing can ever be lit. Amen? So at that point, he had his own personal revival. He had his own personal relationship with the Lord on a level that he'd never experienced in all of his years. And so he he began to have some success and so he uh, the Lord spoke to him about organizing a prayer meeting with his people well he couldn't get anybody interested except his family and he has uh, he said there was a backslidden man and his wife and uh, a young lady and those were the only ones so he started he started meeting with them and so he said they just sat there like deer in a headlight you know just doing nothing and he he uh, finally he said is the Lord speaking anything to anyone and he goes around the room, no, no, no. Finally comes this one young lady, she says, no, not really. <laughs> well, you know, if you're like Elijah looking for the cloud, and you're praying, <laughs> you can recognize. If you're not praying, you wouldn't see that cloud for nothing. But if you're praying, a cloud the size of a man's hand looks pretty good. So not really sounded like something promising. So he said, well, well what is it? She said, oh, it's so, it's so ridiculous. She said, I, I you know, it, 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 no. And so he says, well, what does he want? She says, well, I feel like he wants me to walk around the, and, and hit the table. And so she refused to do it because she was very proud and, and it seems, you know, very intimidated. So he said the next night they got together. He did the praying. He did the preaching. He did, you know, he did the, the worship. He did everything. And they just sat there. And so finally he said, okay. Each night she would say, not really. And each night she would say the same thing. So one night, finally, you know, I've had it. Every one of us are going to walk around that table and we're going to hit the table. <laughs> so she was the last one. She was the last one. And when she walks around it and she hit the table, the power of God came in like a whirlwind, knocked them all off their feet, filled them with the Holy Ghost, and revival started among the people there. And so it was just a, a phenomenal thing. I said, what do you think that hitting the table means? He said, I haven't got a clue to this day except it was just some form of obedience. She was just being obedient. And what it did, it brought in the glory. Well, at that point, then they began having success. People started getting healed. People started getting saved. And so about, uh, he had organized a little Bible school where he had 50 students. And, and these 50 students, of course, were well-versed in prayer because that was his main focus. That's where God had broken through to him. And so he knew that that's what the, the students needed. Well, one of the students was out one night praying. And while he was praying, the awesome presence of the Lord came. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, the feel-good little tickle. It was the, the fear of the Lord. And he was so afraid of the presence, was so powerful, he was so afraid that he ran back to the dormitory. And when he ran back to the dormitory, the, uh, the, the presence came with him. He said it wasn't an angel, it was the Lord, the presence of the Lord. And he said it came into the room with him, and then all the other young men <laughs> felt the same thing. They started getting under the covers, under the bed, every, anywhere they could to get away from that presence because it was so holy and so awesome. Well, when the report came back to Dr. Miller, he dismissed all the classes, and he called the, the classes to prayer. And that's where they sewed in tears. He said that the minute that they stepped through the door, they would start to weep. 
And he said there would actually be puddles of water of their tears. It was so awesome. And it went on for day after day until they had the breakthrough. Amen. And when they had the breakthrough, he said it was just, it was, it was when they had repented of everything that they knew, they had renounced the world, the flesh, and the devil. Then they began to vicariously repent for their nation. They be, you know, their, their vision began to be expanded. And the Lord began to deal with them. And they had, uh, they had I, I forget whether it was two months, something like that. It was uh, uh, quite, quite some period of time. And, then the, and the Lord had given them all kinds of instructions during that time, prophetic words. Avida was the, um, was the wife of uh, Juan Perón. At that time, he was a dictator over Argentina and the Vida. You know, I think it's interesting that she's been been resurrected in our day, so that we know who he, she is. The younger generation, you know, the Avida, the uh, the um, the Broadway play, and I think they did a, a film on Avida too, if I'm not mistaken. But she was a very wicked woman. She was leading the nation into witchcraft, and they were already under a, a dictator. And so the Lord had given all kinds of instructions about what was going to happen, that she was going to go out, uh, you know, she was going to die, and that when she did, it would be after that that the Lord was going to move in their country. <clears throat> and uh, he said she was, he, she was, he was dealing with her, but she was not repentant. Anyway, at the end of that time, the Lord, the Lord uh, gave a prophetic word. This was like the end of that, those prayer meetings. And he said, after that, they never cried again. The Lord spoke and he said, the lion of the tribe of Judah has found 50 people who were willing to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. He said, I give you Argentina. And that's when God began to move in Argentina, as continued to. Even though they've had all kinds of issues down there, there's still a mighty threat of revival going on in Argentina. Well, what happened is at the same time God is dealing with a a little evangelist by the name of Tommy Hicks was a part of the healing ministry group uh, that uh, Gordon Lindsay had, uh, was kind of initiating in those days. And uh, T.L. and Daisy Osborne were supposed to go down and hold a campaign in um, Argentina. And they were unable to keep their appointment because they, had, they, had, uh, they were having revival in Chile, I believe it was, next door, the, one of the countries next door. And when, <clears throat> when Tommy Hicks, uh, the Lord had spoken to him and said he was to go to Argentina and that he was uh, to pray for someone by the name of Peron and uh, that there was going to be a campaign down there. And it's so interesting because he didn't know who Peron was, didn't know what that name meant at all. So when he, um, he got the word, the, the Osbournes asked him to go in their stead. Well, the, the group that was bringing them in had gone through all kinds of red tape because remember, they're under a dictator. And, and Christianity was not the favorite subject. Catholicism, I guess, would have been the main if there was a religion at all in Argentina. And so um, they had procured a building that would hold 2,500 people. And when Tommy Hicks got there, really they didn't want him because they were very disappointed. They, they wanted uh, Daisy and um, Peel Osborne. And they got Tommy Hicks instead. And so he comes down there, and they said that they had this, this auditorium for him. He said, well, he said, I want the, I think it was the, uh, I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was uh, one of the Colosseums. They held 25,000 people. They said, well, you know, we're going to be lucky to get 2,500. What are you talking about? He says, no, no, we need, we need this building, 25,000, or we need this arena, 25,000. And they said, well, 
you can't. There's no way. We'd have to get permission. We'd have to try. He said, well, who would be the one to give the permission? They said, the president. Meanwhile, he had found out who the president was when he was on the plane on his way to Argentina. He was talking to the stewardess, and he says, do you know anybody by the name of Perón? She goes, yeah, that's our president. <laughs> oh, okay. Different picture now. So here he is down in Argentina. He wants this arena that holds 25,000, and he has to go to the president to get permission. So he goes down to the pink house. They ha we have a white house here, but they have a pink house there. And he went, and uh, as he's going up the steps to go in to see the president, one of uh, the guards come and stop him and says, where are you going? Who are you and where are you going? He says, well, I'm Tommy Hicks. I'm from America. He said, I'm here to see the president. <laughs> It'd be like me going and saying, yeah, I'm here to see President Obama today. Is it okay if... You know, I mean, and he says, the president, what do you want to see him for? He says, well, I want permission for this arena that holds 25,000 down here. And he said, and because uh, he said, I want to preach the gospel and pray for the sick. And the man says, preach the gospel, pray for the sick. He says, pray for the sick. Do you believe, do you believe God heals? He goes, well, yes, he heals. And the guard says to him, well, you know, he said, I have this illness. And he had an incurable illness. And he said, I've been to all these doctors and nobody's been able to help me. He said, could God heal me. So he prayed for the man, and the man was instantaneously healed right there on, on the steps of the pink house. Amen? And the, the thing that's so incredible is that the man said, come back tomorrow, I'll get you in to see the president. Now, how many of the guards or the bodyguards would be able to get you right into President Obama just, just because of an encounter there uh, on the steps of the building? So he came back the next day, and Dr. Miller was saying he was not in the room, but he knew a lot of the people who were in the room. The room was full of people. And uh, they brought him right into Peron. And you know, the scripture, not the scripture, one of the, one of the, um, uh, one of the revivalists said, when you partner with God, make your plans large. So when he was brought before the president, the president asked him what he wanted. He said, well, he told him the same thing he told the guard. And he wanted to uh, pray for the, you know, he wanted to... Uh, preach the gospel. He wanted to pray for the sick. And he said, and I'd like, uh, I'd like uh, coverage on the radio. He said, I'd like newspaper coverage. <laughs> you know, he's added all of this, uh, these other things to him. And so President Perón looked at him and he said, uh, he said that he presented the gospel. Dr. Miller said that he presented the gospel to the president. He does not know that the president received the Lord. He did not at that conjuncture. But the president was suffering from an eczema, a terrible skin condition, and he could no longer be in, out in the public. He couldn't go in front of cameras. It was very debilitating. He'd been all over the world, had the best doctors, consults. Nobody could help him. So Perone says to him, could God heal me? Tommy Hicks reaches over, touch, takes a hold of his hand, and they said in front of everybody that was in that room, his skin became like that of a baby. Hallelujah. He was completely and totally healed. President said, you got the arena? <laughs> you got anything you want? And actually changed the laws so that when they have the present day revival down in Argentina, they were able to do it more easily because of what had happened back in the 1950s. He held a campaign for 62 days. They overflowed the 25,000. They had to move into uh, another stadium which seated 180,000. And there would be at least 20,000 or more people that were unable to get in the arena. In fact, I've got some old reel-to-reel -reel that they've put on a video of some of those meetings. Awesome. You would like to see those. Yeah. And Dr. Miller telling about revivals I have known. Woo. I got some, I got some good stuff. <laughs> I'd like to put it on DVD, but I don't know how to do that. Anyway, uh, he was... He, 
what happened is there were hundreds and thousands of people saved. Three or four million people, that's how many came to the Brownsville Revival, but this is three or four million people or five million people that came in a 62-day period. The vice president's wife was healed. All kinds of uh, major things happened uh, during that revival. It so set Argentina on fire. Dr. Miller said that for many, many years after he left, even though he was exhausted and tired and came back to the States, after 62 days of night and day revival, you can imagine as an evangelist how tired you would be. But what it did, it changed the entire dynamics of Argentina. And it all started, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. I've often wondered if the Lord could find 50 people in America that were willing to rebuke and cast down the world, the flesh, and the devil and believe if he would give us our nation. I mean, truly people committed like that. It's a good challenge for us, isn't it? All right. Uh, Travail, that's weeping in tears. Groaning, Old Testament. Exodus 2. 24 and 25, so God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Exodus 6, 5, and I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians kept in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You see, those groanings are something that gets God's attention. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, that was groanings Old Testament, groanings New Testament. Groaning and weeping, and I love to tell this story. In John 11, 32 through 35, this is when Jesus comes after Lazarus has been laid in the tomb. And he comes to Mary and to Martha. It says, and when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So there was a groaning and a weeping that produced life from the dead, that produced a resurrection. And I'm going to tell this on my husband. Um, He was working, you know, he worked in the motion picture industry. He was, like I said, a stuntman. And uh, one of his friends, Henry Wills, who who Bob had led to the Lord and then led him into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then he became a part of our church. We were associate pastors in Assembly Church for 10 years while he was working. And he's resting right now. (laughs) You're resting right now. I'm telling the story about Henry. And so, Bob, you like this story. (laughs) I would have let you tell it except you were resting. (laughs) I mean, he's bored to death with me. How many times is he... (laughs) How many times has he sat and listened to me teach? And he's an awesome preacher. Now, think, think about that. You know, you know, I have to say, my husband is a man among all men. Uh, a man who is a great preacher, and he was also very popular and well-known in Hollywood in his field, and very well-respected, and was uh, the preacher every Sunday night at our church, and, uh, and he held a 
meeting for stuntmen's, the stuntmen for eight years at the stuntmen's office, led many of the men to the Lord, came into just a lot of them are ser- still serving the Lord and, and uh, just wonderful. Well, Henry and he were on a job, and Henry was a good friend of Bob's even before he got saved, so he was able to see the transformation. Bob worked his first 13 years as a sinner, and the rest of his, until he retired at 65, <clears throat> as a Christian. So they were able to observe his life change. Anyway, um, Henry was going to be running a show on, uh, uh, let's see, it was a commercial, a Yamaha commercial up in the Redwood Forest. And, and Bob and he had such a long history together. I think you, I forget, you were on a Sylvester Stallone show or something like that when he, you led him to the Lord, right? can't remember. I think that's what it was. And then he started coming to our church and he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and, you know, his whole life was changed. He and his wife started coming to church. And so they were best friends. And Henry was going to be running this show, uh, this commercial. And it was going to be a Yamaha commercial. And Bob was supposed to bring his falling horse. And and, uh, they were going to dress as old old uh, Roman knights and stuff like that. And the sequence was going to be that this father and his, his little boy were, were on Yamahas and they were running through the, the big redwood forest. And, you know, they had the smoke, you know, it was real ethereal. And, and these old knights that supposedly, I guess, had been in the woods there for two or 3,000 years, they come out and they're chasing, you know, the, the man and his son on the Yamaha. And they were on horseback. Well, anyway, uh, when... When Henry addressed Bob, and Bob says, sure, I'm not doing anything. I'll be happy to do that. So uh, the thing is that Henry loved Bob so much, he, he oversold him to the director. He said to the director, you know, I've got five guys. Four of them are small, and I've got one great big guy. And uh, the director says, no, 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 no. I want them all the same size. So Henry was very chagrined. He came to Bob, and he says, Bob, I'm sorry. I can't take you on that show. Bob said, that's okay. He says, you know, jobs are like a streetcar. One's coming down the road all the time. I'll get another job. Don't worry about it. But what happened is uh, Henry went on, and this, is, this was in the 80s, so Henry had gone on up to, the, um, uh, to, to choose you know, some sites where they were going to do the filming and, uh, and didn't have a cell phone or anything in those days. So there was no way to get a hold of Henry. And Henry's son called Bob and says, I want you to go down, was it Warner Brothers? Some universal and get a wardrobe. You know, you're going to be one of the... Bob says, I can't go on that show. Jerry says, listen, I got a better job. My dad wants me up there. He said, I, w- I want you to replace me. Bob says, they've already said I can't replace you. And he said, no, 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 you go ahead. Hung up the phone. So Bob is all upset, you know, but he goes down, he gets the wardrobe fitting, and he flies up to the Redwoods thinking he's going to be on the plane coming right back. <laughs> And when he gets off the plane, he sees Henry's face, <laughs> who was not expecting him. But what happened is the, uh, and I don't blame him, the director fell in love with Bob. And he said, from then on, it was, Bob, get your boys and do this. Bob, get your boys and do that. You know, he had him in charge of all kinds of stuff. Well, anyway, as it went on, they were shooting. It was the last day. And I'd let Bob tell the story, but he was resting, so I'm telling it for him. Anyway, <laughs> the last day of the shooting... And uh, Bob, they had just finished the sequence, and so the director said, go line, go tie up the horses, you're done. And so they went, took the horses to the picket line. On the way, Bob hears somebody yelling, get the medic, get the medic, somebody's down, somebody's down. And on every show, uh, whether, whether it's a commercial, uh, television, movies, whatever, they always have a medic on the job. And uh, in case there's something that goes wrong, and uh, they're yelling, you know, somebody's down, somebody's down. So 
Bob looked around. He, he didn't know most of the people because you never worked commercials. You usually worked either feature films or television. And so he was looking for Henry, but he thought he was in one of those big trees, you know, because they had the cameras set up inside one of the, you know, the redwood trees where you can drive a car through it? Yeah, they burn out on the inside, but the tree keeps on growing. Okay, so they had the camera set up in there, and he thought since Henry was the second unit director that he was inside the tree. So, so he went on ahead and tied up the horse, and all of a sudden, here comes the wrangler boss, Stevie, and she's yelling, Bob, Bob, come quick, come quick, come quick. It's Henry. He's down. He's down. So Bob goes down to where they were. this big crowd was, and he parts the crowd, and he goes in. He sees Henry laying there on the ground. Now, he's already turned blue. There's no breathing. He's, there's no pulse. There's no heartbeat. There's nothing. And the medic is saying, one of the stunt guys is saying, please, let's try CPR. He says, there's no need for that. He said, the man is dead. He's dead. No heartbeat, no pulse, nothing. He's not breathing. The man is dead. When Bob saw that, he ran in. He pushed everybody out of the way. He laid down on Henry. And he began to rebuke the spirit of death. And he began to call on the power of God. And he's speaking in tongues and weeping and crying at the top of his voice. <laughs> well, the crowds parted all on their own then. Because <laughs> these are mainly sinners, you know. What's going on? And Bob is not a quiet guy. And so anyway, all of this is going on. And, and they're all... And all of a sudden, Henry goes... And took three deep breaths... And the medic says, oh, look, he's, he's breathing. So then they started doing CPR. They took him into the hospital. All right. The producer came to Bob and said, Bob, that was the most one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And she said, we're bringing Henry's, we're flying Henry's wife in. Would you stay here? Because the rest of the company was going home. He says, she said, would you stay here? And when Gail comes, Bob says, sure, we're, we're good friends. So he and Gail go in to see Henry. Henry's sitting up in bed. He's got all these tubes in him, but he's writing notes. I'm fine. I'm okay waving and all that kind of thing and so anyway the doctor calls him in and they don't say anything to the doctor and the doctor sat him down and, he, and Bob went in with with, with Gail and uh, the doctor says Mrs. Wills we have seen a notable miracle today he said your husband was without oxygen to his brain for 47 minutes and there is no brain damage hallelujah amen amen Absolutely a wonderful, wonderful testimony. But you know, Bob said that the greatest, um, the greatest test for him was if it had been a street person, if it had been, you know, just somebody he didn't know, would he be willing to make a fool of himself? Because that's basically what it looked like he was doing, crying and weeping and speaking in tongues and screaming at the top of his lungs. Amen? And that was a real test. He said, I don't know if I would have been able to do that or not. But the beauty of it all is that Henry lived another 10 years uh, to serve the Lord, and he said the only thing that, that uh, was uh, a damage to his thought life was he couldn't remember who he owed money to <laughs> before that occurrence. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Hebrews 5, 6 through 8. Also, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, 
who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now we're going to go here to, to authority, and we'll be real short on this. Asking according to the will of God. That's where the authority comes from. 1 John five fourteen through 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. <clears throat> and if he... Uh, okay, any, let me start that again. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so, again, we would emphasize in your intercession, find out what God's will is over an issue. Amen? Don't just start throwing it out there because your solution, 99 times out of 100, will not be God's solution. Whenever we have it all worked out about God's going to do this and God's going to do that and God's going to do the other... He never does it the way you think. It all, the end of it will be according to the will of God, but he always goes about it in a different way to show that he's God and we're not. Amen? Confidence in heart. We've covered this also. In 1 John three twenty one through 23, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So there we go, all about the heart. Romans eight we've read that one to death. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now let's look at warfare. And uh, this is something that uh, we're going to just cover a little bit here. <clears throat> one of our, the greatest places of power is in humbling. <laughs> the humblest man, of course, was Jesus. And he had the greatest power of anybody that's ever hit this earth. It was said of Moses, he was a meek man. Who could, who could stand against? up to his stature in power and in glory. So if we understand it's not about how loud we command or how, how loud, how good our prayers are, it's about our humility. <clears throat> in Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will... Oh, even before you pray even before you turn from your wicked ways. Humility comes first. If my people... I, I, I give you a challenge to do a study on humility. A humble and a contrite heart. Contrition, humility, and see what you come up with. It will amaze you at how powerful that is when it's working in our lives. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and heal their land. Yes, yeah, so we think we see the, the three Hebrew children put in the fire. What did they do? They didn't protest. They didn't try to keep from going in there. They went in. Humbly, they went in there. They came out without even the smell of, of uh, smoke in their hair. Amen? Uh, we see Daniel put in the lion's den. He submitted and humbled himself. What happened? 
He came up out of that lion's den the next morning. If we would see that submitting to the Lord and submitting to his will and being humble in our hearts will be the greatest power over the, the work of darkness that we've ever seen because humility is the opposite of pride. And what does it say about the evil one? Pride. The enemy is all about pride. So if we take the opposite side, that's humble. <laughs> Why would we think that humility wouldn't be one of the most powerful tools in our arson for spiritual warfare? Not humbling to the enemy, but humbling to Almighty God. Amen? Whew, this is good preaching. Repentance. Warfare through repentance. And uh, there's a whole incident here of repentance that has to do with Samuel and how, how their enemies were overcome. Praise, that's the one I wanted to get to. <clears throat> praise, the word praise is yada, like to hold out the hand. That's one of the words. There are many different uh, English, or, or, or there are many different Hebrew words for our one word, praise. One of them is yada, to hold out the hand physically, to throw a stone, an arrow at or away, especially to revere or worship with extended hands, cast out, make confession, praise, shoot, give thanks. Okay, let's look at, um, blessed be the Lord my God who has trained my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And we see in Second Chronicles 20, the, the, we've referred to it, Jehoshaphat's army. So let's look at verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of... in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all of you of Judah and your inhabitants of Jerusalem, you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of his great, this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. Tomorrow go down against the enemy. They were surrounded by enemies. There was no way that they could win the battle. Absolutely, in the natural, no way. <clears throat> Tomorrow go down against them. They'll surely come up at the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem? Do not fear or be dismayed, for tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they humbled themselves, amen. They bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So they arose early in the morning, went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. They went out, <coughs> Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe, 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 believe Woo. in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were all defeated. Now, I think the challenge would have been to the worshipers. <laughs> And the musicians, amen? The anointing and the power of God accompanying what the prophet had said would have to have been a factor mightily upon the musicians and the singers because they were the ones that went out before the Lord. They didn't go with arrows. They didn't go with, uh, with any kind of weapons except the weapons of what God, my, my hands to war. 
and my fingers for battle. We have to see that there's a correlation between warfare and worship. I believe it's the most powerful form of warfare there is. Worship is eternal. It always has been. It always will be. When you leave this world, the only thing you'll take with you is your worship, hallelujah, and the souls you brought to the Lord. You're not going to take anything else. If you think you're going to bury your Rolls Royce you know, in your fur coat you know, with you and you're going to take it, forget it. Not going to happen. <clears throat> Psalm 149, 1 through 9. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song in his praise in the assembly of saints. Let the... Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. You see the correlation. High praises of God in their mouth, a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute to them the written judgment, the honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. I think it was at this morning that someone alluded uh, to, um, maybe it was in one of the songs, I can't remember. What, was that? what were the lyrics on that? Isaiah 42, is it? Isaiah 42, 10 through 13. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastland. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud, and shall prevail against his enemies. I present to you, beloved, that your worship will ignite in the Lord, amen, that warring spirit, amen, and he will defeat our enemies. I, know, I like that one. I'm going to have, the one that you have sounds really good too. I'm going to grab a hold of that one because we know that it, it stirs up his zeal. In Matthew 21, verse 9 through 13, same thing in the New Testament. Then the multitudes who went out before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. Here are all these high praises going out to Jesus. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was made with saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went immediately to the temple of God, drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. What it did is those high praises and all that worship stirred up the zeal within God and he went over and he turned over the money tables. This is the only record that we have of Jesus being angry. Amen? That I, that I can think of. I mean, he was probably angry some other times, but this is one that is specific and I believe it's to draw our attention to the knowledge that the worship and the praise ignites something. It generates something in, in Almighty God that causes him to defeat our enemies for us and to overturn the darkness and the, and the wickedness. Hallelujah. Musical instruments. Uh, let's see. First Samuel. A distressing spirit. We talked about that last night. Playing on the harp. And the distressing spirit left him. Isaiah 30, verse 31 through 32. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines, 
with harps, and in battles of brandishing he will fight with it. <clears throat> Isaiah 31, 8 through 9. The Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of a man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and the young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his, oh, this is about banners, and his princes shall be afraid of the banners. And then in Isaiah 59, 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard or a banner against him. Exodus 17, verse 15 through 16, and Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And we know just by observing in our own political, you know, our, our own countries, that when they take a nation, they plant a banner, a flag. Amen? And so there, the, the symbolism of banners and flags is very important also. I am not an authority in that field. You'd have to, there's some that do all kinds of stuff, you know, with the banners. I'm pretty much finished here, but I want to talk to us about uh, what we were doing last night and about the, um, the sounds of the nations. I believe that when God created mankind, he placed them in different areas of the world, of the nations. <clears throat> and there's a sound in every people. And it is my good pleasure to travel nationally, internationally, because in regions of America it's the same thing. You know, you have different sounds. and Like, like I love the Appalachian sound, you know, the, the real... The real um, Southern, really southern, southern. Uh, and you go to Ireland, there's, they have a sound of their own. You go to Africa, they have a sound of their own. You go wherever you go around the world, the people, cultural people groups have a sound of their own. I believe that, that God placed worship in all of mankind. And this is a time when he's calling that worship back to him. And it needs to be expressed in the, in the, uh, the sound that he placed in them. I become very distressed when I go to other countries and they're playing uh, westernized music. They're just playing our music. Go to Mexico. I want to hear some mariachi. I want to hear the guitars. I want to hear, you know, that sound. A salsa sound because that's the sound that I connect with Mexico. Amen? Um, I want to hear the sounds of whatever the, the nation or the culture or the region that you're in. Well, I was in South Africa right after apartheid, probably... Mm, 97, I don't know how, that was shortly after uh, Mandela had come into, um, and by the way, I haven't seen the news for a couple of days, how's he doing? I heard he was, you know, so Lord touched the man. I, I, uh, I don't know what his politics are and I don't know that much about him, but that's the only ruler that I know of who was able to change an entire nation, though the nation is, you know, it's in the dumper right now, change an entire nation without bloodshed because he used it through forgiveness. He had the people forgive one another so that they didn't have to kill each other. It was a, a, an amazing, study it out sometime. But I had come to South Africa, I was in, I don't know where, Cape Town I think it was. And we were having a, a women's conference there and I was teaching on raising again the Tabernacle of David uh, and, uh, and commenting on the, the sounds of the nations, that God loves the sounds of the nations as much as we do. Don't you just love to go to, you know, to an Irish hoedown? <laughs> yeah, and listen to that music. Don't you just love it? And, uh, and I, so I had been several days 
doing this women's conference, and this last day I was uh, teaching on raising again the Tabernacle of David. And what had happened is when I first came, we had we had uh, Afrikaans, we had British, we had we had Hosa, we had uh, Zulus, we had different mixing of of the people there, and they had brought a group down from I guess like the Congo, which would be what Rwanda and that region, and they had come 1,500 miles. These women, and they had brought their drum with them, and they came they came to the meeting, and of course it was a women's gathering, and so we're going to take. We're going to take an offering for the poor, you know, African women. So they had them in their tribal outfit. You, you've been to women's meetings like that. They had them in their tribal outfits, and they brought their drum up, and they, they sang a traditional song in their language, and so on. Yeah, 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 clap, clap, take an offering. No, that's very good. Okay, well, I had been there. That, that was early part of the meetings, probably the first or second day. Well, I had been there four days, and on the platform, we had, we had a worship team, and uh, this last day, it's my last day, and if they never invite me back again, that's okay, too. I didn't care. <laughs> I said, you know what? I have been here for four days. I have heard Britain because I've heard Martin Smith. Okay. I've heard Southern Gospel. I've heard Lyndall Cooley. I've heard Hillsong, so I've heard from Australia. Uh, I've heard all of these different countries. I said, but I'm standing in Africa. Where is the sound of Africa? And so with that, they're all kind of, ooh. At the end, we had a, Q, a dangerous Q&A. Okay, question and answers. The first lady, the very back, I'll never forget, very eloquent, she said, are you suggesting that we should allow our black Africans that have played their drum to demons bring that drum into the church? I said, honey, that's exactly what I'm saying. With that, the African group goes, and they begin to dance all the way up. I said, bring that drum up here, honey. So they brought their drum, and they, oh, it, it, was, a, it, was, it was great. I said, if in America, I'm from the South, we have a lot of bubbas, a lot of good old boys, okay? And they can, they can really play the guitar, many of them. I see you have some good guitar players around here, too. Anyway, uh, the old boy, he's been playing in, the, in, in, we called it in the old days, a honky-tonk. You know, I guess the, the country westerns still call it a honky-tonk. Anyway, he's been playing down there in the local bar. And he's been singing, oh, my woman, she left me, but I found another one last night. We fell in love for the whole night while we got drunk. If that isn't sin... If that isn't enticing people into, into sinful activity, what is it? I mean, those things are seducing people into that kind of a lifestyle. What's the difference? That's bringing demons in, you know. I said, but that good old boy, he gets, he gets sobered up enough to come to church, or he gets sober at church, you know, and he's at the altar, and they know he, he can play that guitar. Man, can he play that guitar. Next thing you know, he's on the platform. And he's up there playing that same guitar <laughs> that he played when he was sitting in the bar enticing people into immoral lifestyle. I said, did we make him go out and break up his guitar? That guitar doesn't know anything. It doesn't know. It's string and it's wood. I said, honey, that, that drum doesn't know what it is. It's skin and, and it's wood. You know, that drum only reflects what the player of that drum reflects. That drum doesn't have a life of its own. Amen? 
when that man gets redeemed, the drum gets redeemed. Yeah, and so we love the indigenous sound. We love the sounds of the nations. And I'm going to be playing a DVD for you about the Indigenous Peoples Conference. It was quite some years ago, but it's still very relative to now. I want us to get it into our spirit that it's very important that we encourage those from other nations to continue in the sound that they have always had with the musical instruments that they use. Amen? And not to try to emulate what's being done in the Western Church. Because I believe that God loves all kinds of sounds. <laughs> if we like it, think how much he loves it. And the worship's coming back to him. Okay, we can turn these lights off now and watch this. And that will be the end of me until tonight.